to Graphic Policy Radio. We are joined today with Melanie Gilman. Um, she'll be talking with us to discuss As the Crow Flies, which is their new uh, comic. Um, As, the Flow Cry, As the Crow Flies is a story about Charlie, a queer 13-year-old girl who finds herself stranded in a dangerous place, an all-white Christian youth backpacking camp. It has been nominated for the Slate Cartoonist Studio Prize, an Eisner Award at Ignatz, and won the gold medal from the Society of Illustrators. It has been on host Elon Eleven. Hi, list of most exciting and unique and beautiful comics to check out uh, for a while. So I'm very enthusiastic to have Melanie Gilman joining us on the show. Um, Melanie is a Eisner and Ignatz nominated cartoonist. They are the creator of As the, Flo- As the Crow Flies. And a web, which is a web comic uh, that we will soon be able to, well, you can purchase now actually through the Kickstarter site, which we'll talk about in a little bit, published by Iron Circus Comics. Um, they have also written the Steven Universe comic for Boom Studios, and they currently live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they are a 2017 through 2018 fellow in the Tulsa Artist Fellowship. Um, and before we get started, I wanted to bring up something which Melanie themselves has actually been a very, very, very on top of it person to remind everyone in the comics about, which is that the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, is something which is incredibly important to working artists, freelance writers, uh, and anybody else who doesn't go and work a nine-to-five job for a standard employer. Um, So many artists are only able to do what they do because they're able to get health care independently of having a boss. And so it's incredibly important for comics fans to get on the phone and call their member of the Senate, call them every day and tell them that they need to vote against the Senate uh, health bill because it will destroy access to health care for people in the arts and for people, period. So um, thank you, Melanie, for reminding me that this is something we should be asking our listeners to do. And welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, and thank you for reminding everybody. I am, uh, I'm one of those people who will probably lose their health care if this bill passes. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of cartoonists whose work is on the line with this. So that's one of the reasons why we're all very, very vocal about it over the past couple months. Yeah. I mean, I know for myself, I literally the reason I ended up doing what I do for a living, working in the nonprofit sector, is because – I needed health insurance and I couldn't get that working in arts and media when I graduated from college Mm -hmm. thousands of years ago in the past. And um, I decided (laughs) I was just going to like literally take a job to like fight the insurance industry for like ruining my hopes and dreams. That basically Mm -hmm. is how I ended up where I am today. (laughs) So I I want future generations to be able to have health insurance irrespective of their employer. So yeah, yeah, especially when so many jobs are moving into the like the contract sector versus the like traditional nine to five sphere. Um, yeah, this definitely isn't just cartoonists who are who are going to be affected by this. Definitely. So I'm really glad that folks are talking about. That's one of the things Graphic Policy Radio does is we really do like to talk about the intersection of art and politics, and mm-hmm. politics have impacts on people in real ways. So. So thank you for doing that. And your comic itself, you know, is definitely a comic that I first found out about because I was looking at a list which said, um, you know, all the really cool LGBTQ comics are happening as web comics to start with. And it's mm-hmm. the sort of thing where I know intellectually I've known that that was true, but I really wasn't doing my homework, putting in my time to like look at what the new works were that were online. And I, mm-hmm. I wish I remembered which list I first saw your comic on, but 
Um, I was clicking through them and I just immediately got sucked into As the Crow Flies. I just kept hitting return every page to read the next page for several hours. And at some point I had to go to bed um, and, <laughs> and that was that. And I was like just completely enchanted with the story. Um, you know, folks who haven't seen your art, really take a look now at, at MelanieGilman.com and check out this, this beautiful colored pencil art um, that is just completely distinctive and that doesn't look like anything else out there. It's really sensitive and the setting is with nature and these characters' faces. It's just so unique. So, um, so that's how I found your comic is through the LGBTQ web comics that you should be reading list about, about oh, a year awesome. ago. Yeah. So oh, um, I'm I've flattered. Left, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, it was like falling down the rabbit hole of like reading just for hours <laughs> <laughs> and I'm excited. Now yeah. Web comics be can be good for that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm excited that folks will be able to read it in print soon. So I'd love to hear first, yeah. like, how did you get started making comics in the first place as a writer and artist? Um, so I got started pretty late in life, comparatively. Uh, I I wasn't drawing or reading comics pretty much at all until I was in undergrad. Uh, I, I grew up in one of those households where, like, we didn't have comics in the house very much. It just wasn't really a thing on my radar. Uh, also, you know, if you go back even, like, 10, 15 years or so, uh, the the landscape of comics was so different. There was almost nothing out there that was like aimed towards teens or younger readers or uh, like girls or femmes or anything. There was very little out there uh, that was appealing to those demographics, which is so different from where we are today. Uh, so I kind of grew up in the, the wrong period for getting into comics as a kid. Um, but as soon as I got into undergrad, uh, I started realizing that web comics were a thing, and that was the first time where I was kind of uh, looking at you know the breadth of comics that were being made today, and being like, oh, there's actually stuff out here that appeals to me and that I'm interested in, and a lot of that was because I was finally finding works that were written by women and by queer people and by people of color, and it was like, whoa, these actually seem like relevant and interesting, and I want to see more of them, and I like had no idea that this was going on in comics. Um, and I had, I mean, no background in comics other than that, no comics writing experience, no comics art experience, uh, but I just sort of bullheadedly dove into it. I was like, I can do this. Um, started out mostly drawing journal comics, which I think is where a lot of young cartoonists these days start out. Because, uh, you know, if you're looking for stories to tell, looking at your own life is one of the, one of the easier places to start. Um, so, you know, got myself a little live journal page because this was back in the era where live journal was the place to be if you wanted to build an audience in web comics. Mm. Um, started posting little autobio comics and yeah, it just kind of, uh, kept going from there. Um, and yeah, you know, please don't try to go search out any of my early comics because they're very, very bad. Uh, I had a very steep learning curve that I had to teach myself all the skills that you need to be a professional cartoonist before I actually made anything that was worth looking at. But, you know, that's, that's how it goes for everybody, I think. Mm -hmm. But you, you must have had a significant background in, in art in general and visual arts. <laughs> no, none. Um, I mean, wow. I, I, uh, I was a kid who would draw for fun sometimes, uh, and my mom was a 
a semi-professional colored pencil artist for most of my childhood. Uh, so I did kind of grow up around colored pencils and being able to see what could be done with them um, and had a little bit of experience just playing around with them, but nothing hmm. professional, you know, other than the occasional high school art class. I really didn't have any formal training as far as art making goes. Uh, and I, I think it kind of shows in my work a little bit, just in the sense of like, um, I think that when a cartoonist doesn't go the formal art route, uh, they, they end up developing something of a visual look about them that doesn't quite look the same as like the formally schooled people. Uh, and that's not to say that like one is better or worse than the other. Like I certainly have a whole lot of uh, flaws in my work too that probably come out of, you know, never having gotten that formal background. Uh, but you kind of develop a visual language of your own that brings a, a, some amount of uniqueness to the way that you render forms. And I think I see that in my work and in a lot of other cartoonists' work, uh, specifically the ones who didn't go the like formal art training, art school background route. Um, but yeah, lots of different ways to end up a professional cartoonist, and not all of them involve art school. That's so interesting. Um, and I was going to ask you about colored pencils because I, you know, I I was a kid who drew a ton and did a lot of art classes when I was little. And I, when I got more into comics, I really completely like as a visual form I completely moved away from using colored pencils whatsoever because of the mm -hmm. softness in the colors I yeah. I just was like oh well, this could I mean granted we're talking about way back in that when that really would not have reproduced all regardless um, but uh, <laughs> but I, I I just really felt like oh well this couldn't possibly be something that would work um, on that mm -hmm. level like visually uh, so I just stopped using them all together and I was using, you know, colored markers and things that were more saturated. Uh, but you, you sort of mm -hmm. you grew up around colored pencils and then yeah. you um, have really made that like your visual, your visual choice. I'd love to hear a little mm -hmm. bit more about the how and the why. Yeah. Uh, I've actually heard a lot of people have stories similar to yours where like, you know, maybe you had some colored pencils as a kid, but you never really um, like learned what, what can be done with them. And I think a lot of that is art teachers, especially at the like, you know, middle school, high school level, usually don't know how to teach them. Uh, and I don't know that I would have ever known what they were capable of doing if I hadn't been like essentially living in a household with another person who was, uh, you know, making uh, what my mom did was a lot of like very uh, large scale uh, illustration work of things like, you know, very detailed zoomed in photos of uh, old beat up wooden instruments where she would go in with the colored pencils and, you know, uh, really get all the detail of all the like wear and tear on the instruments and the play of lighting on them. So I knew how detailed they could get and how polished they could end up looking. But I mean, if I, if I hadn't known that, then, then there, I, there's no reason why I would have gone to them. Uh, the other I hope I'm not getting too like too rambly here, but there's also kind of a uh, um, art tools um, misconception that happens with colored pencils, where mm -hmm. a lot of kids and a lot of art teachers uh, think that the Prismacolor colored pencils are the best colored pencils on the market. Um, and there's a whole big old history behind that where, you know, for a long time back in like the 80s and 90s, they really were the best pencils on the market. Uh, but then they got bought out by Sanford, which was a school grade company, and they uh, 
decreased them to school grade level in quality, but kept selling them at professional grade prices. Uh, so everybody kind of, everybody was kind of like, oh yeah, Prismacolors are the best colored pencils. Meanwhile, they were like essentially turning into the same quality of colored pencils that you would get out of like Crayola oh, wow. or Rose Art. Yeah. Um, Ooh, but but worst, nobody man. knew, nobody knew that they weren't very good pencils so everybody keeps buying them and this is you know this is still happening to this day uh so that lead softness that you mentioned with colored pencils it's really only like the the cheap colored pencils like prismacolors and whatnot um as soon as you get into like almost any other brand of colored pencil it's this whole different world and there's so many things that you can do with them that you can't do with with uh you know, what people thought was the professional standard. Uh, I do a lot of, like, colored pencil 101 workshops at comic conventions these days because I think they're really fun. Uh, and that's one of, the, one of the big points that I try to hammer home is, like, you know, uh, as soon as you break yourself of the Prismacolor habit, then almost any other brand that you go to, there's a ton of stuff that you can do with them that, like, you never would have guessed. Uh, just working with the stuff that most people think is like professional colored pencils. Uh, I mean, it's basically equivalent to like everybody's, you know, still using Rose Art colored pencils and being like, why, why aren't these working very well? They aren't working mm. very well because they're, they're not designed for that. Um, but yeah, so I'm using uh, Polychromos colored pencils right now. It's a Faber-Castell brand. Uh, and they look expensive when you walk into an art store because they're like, I don't know, maybe $2 a pencil instead of like $1.50 for a Prismacolor. Uh, but they're actually cheaper in the long run because Prismacolors are so soft that by the time that you buy them, the leads are already shattered at multiple points on the inside. So the leads will keep snapping off when you're using hmm. them. Uh, but any other colored pencil, it won't do that on you. Uh, there, that was a whole, whole long ramble about like, don't buy Prismacolors. Uh, yeah. I love this. I hope that wasn't I mean, too I, off I appreciate topic. the art tips on that. I know. I, what other podcast <laughs> is going to share this? Not, none of that I listen to. So. <laughs> We're wow. getting real niche here. Mm-hmm. But people love to know how comics are made. I mean, one of the things that was the, that I also want to note is one of the reasons I don't read as many web comics as I should, as someone who's supposed to be supporting queer independent comics, is because I like the way art looks like when a person makes it by hand. And your mm -hmm. comic is like one of the most handmade looking things I've seen. Um, and so, I mean, what's your process for, for making that now? Um, well, I uh, the process is fairly traditional. Um, I do everything on Bristol board. Uh, most of my originals, especially for As the Crow Flies, are kind of small, uh, just because colored pencil takes so long. Like if I work on big pieces of paper, then it takes that much longer to color in everything. So I tend to work small just to save time. Um, and, you know, draw everything on a piece of Bristol board. Uh, start off with graphite, just doing the pencil layer. Uh, and then usually I'll pick about five different colored pencils and I'll try to do an entire book with just those five colors so that everything has a unified color palette. Um, mm. So for As the Crow Flies, uh, the colors that I'm using, like one of them is kind of a very pale ivory color. Then there's a yellow and an orange and a dark green and kind of a maroony purple color. 
Uh, and all the colors on all those pages just come out of me uh, layering colored, those five colors of colored pencil in various capacities and, you know, blending them together. Uh, but, but yeah, because, you know, you're working with a limited palette, that means that the book is going to end up feeling feeling unified across the board. Uh, there won't be any, like, weird colors coming in out of left field. Um, so I try to do that for most of my books. Uh, the palette does change depending on different books that I'm working on. Like, I'm uh, in the middle of penciling a new Western romance book right now, and for that one, that'll have a whole different palette because it's, you know, based in New Mexico. Uh, so it'll have a little bit more of a Southwest feel to it. So maybe some, like, turquoises and some nice purples and whatnot. Uh, get, you know, get different colors for different settings. Hmm. Um, but I picked a, a palette that worked well for the kind of environment that I wanted to evoke in As the Crow Flies. Like, you know, uh, kind of like Rocky Mountain environments. I was thinking back to my childhood and the experiences that I had um, going to my own backpacking camps and what I remembered of, you know, the, the visuals and the light and the, um, the biospheres, I guess, that we were wandering through and what are the best colors to evoke those kind of uh, feelings and memories that I had of my own experiences out there. Um, but, yeah, overall, limited palettes are the best. Uh, limited palettes are a really good, simple tool for anybody who wants to work with um, with color theory and wants to make it easy on themselves. That's a great tip. I like it. I like it. I, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, one of the reasons that artists are doing so much stuff digitally is because it makes fixing things easier. Now, colored pencils oh, yeah. are less permanent than doing it in ink, but it's still incredibly time you know, time consuming and, and, and detailed to approach comics this way. Um, you know, I, I, I'm glad you've chose to work in colored pencil because I don't like the look <laughs> of digital. But for folks who might have more modern and young palettes than I do, um, you know, like what, what is it about colored pencils as opposed to digital and doing it by hand that, that, that you feel like is, because you could probably get some semblance, I guess, of some of the color sensitivity doing it in digital, but I mean, it wouldn't yeah. be the same. Yeah, the, there's a lot of uh, digital painting programs out there that can get really, really close to the look of traditional media. Um, and I know, I know a couple people who play around with that, like, um, like uh, Megan Rose Gedris always comes to my mind when I think about people who do this really well, it's able to use digital programs to mimic traditional media looks very, very well. Um, but I think it's, for me, it's just, I really enjoy the process of coloring in colored pencil. Um, it, you know, it, it's a medium that makes sense to me on an intuitive level uh, in a way that's kind of hard to describe. Uh, it might just be that I'm kind of, you know, slow and detail-oriented in general, so working in a slow and detail-oriented medium kind of just works for me. Um, definitely wouldn't work for every, everybody, which I think is one of the reasons why there aren't very many people who draw in colored pencil in comics. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a soothing process on a mechanical level like I get to you know each page takes me like I don't know 10 to 12 hours to color for as the crow flies yeah. so it's a long haul for each of them um, but you know I get to uh, go sit down in my studio and put on podcasts or an audiobook and just kind of you know zone out a little bit in color trees for for a long time it's kind of nice actually and had you written the whole story for the comic um, before you started it, like knowing where it was going to end and all the plot points? 
Um, I knew the the overall arc of the story, but I didn't have the entire thing scripted out. Uh, and I did that kind of deliberately because I, I started it when I was in grad school and I was, uh, I was studying at the Center for Cartoon Studies, which is a two-year MFA program for comics. It's uh, based out of rural Vermont. Um, mm-hmm. So I was there for two years uh, working on my thesis and wanted to do this big webcomic. Um, and I knew that it was probably going to end up being like at least 300 pages, maybe more. Uh, and, you know, I'm just like a 24-year-old at the time who's uh, diving into their first big book project. Uh, so I kind of knew that I was still growing a lot as a writer and that if I um, if I wrote out that entire like 300 or however many pages script, probably by the time that I got about halfway through it, I'd already start wanting to change things uh, just because I had, you know, I know that I go slow in comics and you learn a lot about the characters and the world and the story just through the process of drawing pages. Uh, So I kind of deliberately decided, okay, I know the overall arc of this story. I know, you know, where it begins, what happens in the middle, where it's going to end. But I'm not going to script the whole thing because it's okay for me to leave myself a little bit of flexibility. Um, And that ended up being a very smart decision because, you know, I'm going on about five years drawing the same story. uh, And I'm a very different writer today than I was when I started it. Uh, So it's good that I didn't waste all that time trying to nail down exactly how each page is going to look because that would have, it would have ended up being useless work because I have changed a number of things in the story just because I'm uh, you know, growing and considering different aspects of the story and different aspects of the characters as I write them. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm definitely not a person who will try to tell young creators like you know you gotta gotta write everything out first before you set pen to page. Like eh, it's okay to give yourself a little bit of room to change things and be flexible and allow the story to grow with you because that's that's part of the writing process too. Now, the story you're telling, um, what was the uh, inspiration for starting it, or, or why did you choose that as your, as your big project? Um, it's a story that I wanted to tell for a long time. Um, some of it came from personal experiences. I definitely grew up you know, in a uh, fairly conservative Christian environment and got uh, shipped off to like Sunday school youth camping trips pretty much every summer, sometimes also in the winter, uh, which wasn't uncommon for, like, if you're a Christian kid growing up in the the 90s and 2000s in Colorado, next, you know, you're right next to the Rockies. There's all sorts of Jesus camps uh, hidden away up in the mountains. So, yeah, your parents and your church are going to pack you off every summer at least. Um, So a lot of it came from me going through those memories and, uh, and also thinking about the fact that, I really, at least at that time, hadn't seen too many books that talked about uh, queer childhood experiences and queer uh, crises of faith, uh, but from an actual queer perspective. Because uh, definitely you would see some some renditions of those kind of stories that were generally told as like tragic gay stories, usually written mm-hmm. by straight people. Um, but but I was like, you know, having actually gone through this before, I, I could I think I could write this from a little bit more of a 
hopefully nuanced perspectives than some of the, the outsider people who are coming in and trying to imagine how a story like this would look are doing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a combination of a lot of things. Uh, but, but the starting focus was definitely personal experience and uh, things that I went through and things that I experienced for myself. Uh, which doesn't mean that As the Crow Flies is like a secretly an autobiographical story. Um, more what I did was I took a, a setting and, a, and an experience that I was very familiar with and then sort of crafted a fictional narrative that could have taken place there. Um, so, you know, none of the characters are like direct correlations for me or any other person that I met. And this isn't, um, this isn't exactly a story that I went through myself, but it's one that that would fit into that world that I was very familiar with from personal experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I think that my assumption that the story would be super depressing um, might have kept me away <laughs> in some circumstances if I hadn't been so completely seduced by the art. Uh, I don't Aww. do well with sad gay stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, it I definitely hear isn't like that. It's not like that. It's it's intriguing, and at least at the point of the text to which I've reached, it's not like people are outright being like. It's all the sort of quiet cultural microaggressions and assumptions, and it's mm -hmm. not like nobody's getting beaten up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's I I find the story to be much more. Interesting for it because it's not as extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely, I think that might be the big difference between, you know, an outsider perspective versus someone who like has gone through this before uh, is you, what you learn is that it's not, you know, the, the aggression that gets pointed towards you as a queer person um, in a space like this is less the overt stuff and a little bit more the more the microaggressions like what you were saying more the the subtle stuff and the misunderstandings and the and the like very obvious blind like blinders that people are wearing mm -hmm. when they when they talk about issues that um, that involve you um, and also all the politics of you know being being closeted or being semi-closeted in these spaces and, you know, thinking about who, who do you trust enough to disclose to? How do you go about doing that? And what are the, um, and what's the, what are the emotions that you go through when you're, you're dealing with that, trying to talk to other people and trying to make connections with, you know, especially over the course of a, like a week long camp where like you're, you really don't know very many of these other people and you're not going to, be building lifelong friendships there, but you're also all thrown together in this very intense experience. So you do, you do kind of need to find people that you can communicate with uh, or connect to on some level. So yeah, there, there's a whole lot of um, complicated emotional stuff that goes into uh, into the experience of being a queer person in a in a not super queer friendly Christian space. Uh, and I was more interested in that than I was interested in the, you know, uh, overt aggression or violence against queer people or anything like that, because there, there's, a, there's a lot of those stories out there already. And it's not that that stuff never happens, but it's more that that's, 
not the entire picture of how mm-hmm. queer phobia and transphobia affects young people today. Um, so was hoping to hoping to tell a different aspect of that kind of story. It definitely gets me talking and wanting to talk and think about my own like, camp experiences. I feel like for so many people, like camp is either the best or the worst. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely lends itself towards that intensity as well. I, I really like that you yeah. have um, Sydney as another character uh, who's also outsider in the situation. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and um, they are able to talk to each other. There are different places in their life. There definitely is a, there's an age difference between the two of them as well, right? Yeah, there's about a year between the two of them. Uh-huh, but it's uh-huh. but it's an, a big year. It's like Sydney is uh, still prepubescent, and Charlie is a little bit on the other side of puberty. Yeah. Um, so even if it's one year, it's a it's a big year between <laughs> them. Um, but I really enjoy the rela- the, the relationship between them. Um, uh, well, actually, this has been jumping around, but um, but Charlie is the only black character at this camp, uh, and I was mm-hmm. you know curious about like your thoughts about writing that as someone who's not black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's definitely something that I I didn't jump into. Uh, I spent a very long time thinking about this and thinking about my my position as a white writer, especially coming to a story like this. And you know, because you have to think about not just like is this my place to tell this story, but also am I gonna mess it up in some crucial way that's going to end up hurting like actual black children who will be reading this. Um, So it's not a decision that I went into lightly, but it is a story that I wanted to tell. So I um, just committed myself to doing due diligence, uh, you know, talking to people, um, buying and reading other people's books, making sure that I'm considering other perspectives um, trying to consider where my own blind spots might be going into a story like this, and also being willing throughout to uh, to question my own motivations and you know if I mess something up, uh, be ready to make changes where I need to and apologize and reconsider things. Um, someone I'm forgetting who said this quote, but it's something that I think about a lot for um, anyone who's writing characters who are outside their own experience, which, I mean, to be fair, it's fiction. Um, Most characters are going to have some aspect of their lives that is uh, fairly outside your own personal experience because that's that's what we do as storytellers. Um, But particularly when you're writing writing characters who have uh, marginalized experiences that, uh, that you don't have, personally, um, someone said something really great about uh, how you need to approach it with respect and with humility. Um, and I think the humility is the big one, where you need to not not go into it feeling like you know everything, um, and also not go into it assuming that you're going to, you know, write, write the story that's going to, like, change the world or save someone, because uh, you're not, and that's not that's not your place to be that person who's telling that story for that reason. Um, but you can go into it as you want to, you want to tell a story that doesn't often get seen. 
uh, and that that hopefully will will sh- maybe shed some light on things or just be a just be a welcome addition to the overall fictional landscape. I think especially for um, for kids lit, where there there still is a, a big lack of stories that are um, that are reflective of the the incredible diversity of human experiences that we have in the world. Um, there's still we still have a long ways to go there, um, and it's you know not just important to be writing those stories, but also more important, I think, to be supporting the work of artists who come from those backgrounds and are able to tell those stories. Uh, so I, you know, not not to get too preachy here, but I think it's equally, if not more important, to be actually supporting the work of particularly people of color and women of color in comics um, because they have stories to tell that no white writer is going to be able to touch. Uh, mm-hmm. And they don't get the same amount of uh, face time, the same amount of opportunities that white writers get. And that's something that really needs to be addressed. So it's everybody's responsibility to be going out there, uh, buying books, signal boosting, supporting the work of uh, people of color who are able to tell these stories. Um, and make sure that we're doing whatever we can to uh, give other people a place at the table, especially for people who have like kind of made it a little more in publishing um, because uh, you know, you'll have opportunities thrown your way that, that you probably shouldn't accept and you'll have, you know, panel invites and book offers and et cetera, et cetera. But if you're in a position where you're getting those offers and you can redirect them to other people, uh, then that's a way that you can use use your own privilege to to hopefully create opportunities for other people. Um, so that's yeah, that's been a big part of my process as well. Is you know not just thinking about um, trying to do justice to the story that I'm telling in Ask the Crow Flies, but also trying to uh, you do do what I can to try to create opportunities for other people too, because um, I. Yeah, because we need we need more stories total in comics and in publishing, um, and yeah, that was a long ramble. <laughs> Sorry mm. about that. No, uh, I, I very yeah. much agree, and it's great to hear that because yeah, we 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 definitely have the same philosophy over on this podcast too. So, um, mm-hmm. so thank you for speaking about that. And Iron Spike um, Comics, the publisher that you're working with, um, to bring the graphic to bring this uh, into print is a comic publisher that is really focused on helping those voices to be heard in their original format without having to go through mainstream publishers who like will do things like make queer characters straight and make me want to punch them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I would, Oh God, I was so happy that I got to, that I got approached by Iron Circus and by Spike about this book. Um, Yeah. I, I really, really believe in the mission that Spike has and the way that she's been changing the comics industry uh, and, and also just the, the values that she brings to comics and the, the kind of um, the, the direction that she wants to go, both with her own publishing company and also kind of pushing the entire rest of the comics industry along yeah. with her. Well, I, just so folks know, I, I mean, uh, the publishing model basically is through Kickstarter, right? Or... Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, generally what Spike does is she um, 
she puts books up on Kickstarter first. Uh, and for a long time, that was kind of the, the big crux of her sales model was you use Kickstarter essentially as a pre-order drive. You make enough money that you can pay off uh, the artists and pay for all of the printing and the shipping and the fulfillment and whatnot. And then you have the print run left over that you can sell at conventions and sell online, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the Kickstarter kind of ends up paying for all the costs of the book. And then you have the print run afterward that you can uh, sell off. And it's a way that you know uh, indie creators who don't necessarily have access to the big mainstream publishing world can still get a foothold in, and still publish their own comics. Uh, and one of the big things that Spike changed and that like has – that has had a huge reverberation through the entire AB Comics field is that she um, she set up a model where she started paying her contributors uh, and for all her anthologies and whatnot. And that's something where that has uh, and that is all Spike's doing, and it has completely changed the way that indie anthologies end up being published in comics. Uh, that's a that's a publishing model that she invented, uh, and you know every every indie comics anthology that has run a Kickstarter after Spike uh, really owes kind of a debt of gratitude to her because mm. uh, both the the market and the model that we're using for most indie comics anthologies is something that she came up with, and we like it wasn't a thing before her. Uh, anthologies used to be a thing where like. You wouldn't get paid for your work. You would maybe get some contributors' copies if you were lucky, and they really didn't sell all that much. Um, no. That has completely changed, and that is like 100% Spike's doing. So all credit where credit is due. Uh, she changed the field very dramatically in that regard. Definitely. And she definitely helped from folks like me who kind of come from a more traditional co- uh, American comics perspective, like encounter more of these sorts of anthologies that we wouldn't have even come across otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really helped out, especially like um, queer people and women and people of color who want to produce anthologies uh, that, you know, can kind of spotlight up and coming voices in comics. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those are the people who I think have really, really benefited from this model. I mean, getting, even just the fact that we get anthologies like Elements or like Beyond. Uh, we talked about Beyond a lot when we talked about LGBTQ comics last episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Beyond is wonderful. I I dearly love the, the copy that I have on my bookshelf. But yeah, and yeah, and that was kind of an, one of the inspirations for the um, the queer comics anthology that me and Corey Michelle Handwerker put out a couple years back, The Other Side, which is a queer paranormal romance anthology. Uh, but again, we, you know, we are uh, building our model off of what other people in comics have done, what Spike did with her anthologies, and what Tanika and Faye did with Beyond. Uh, where, you know, every I think every success in the indie comics field, especially for queer creators. Uh, kind of opens up some doors for other people to be able to follow in their footsteps, because uh, it, you know, we're we're building an audience of people who are aware of this as being a a field within comics and are interested in seeing more work coming out of it. So, you know, every I I do think that every 
every little queer comic success that we see on Kickstarter kind of uh, kind of widens the market as a whole and makes room for more people to come in, which is awesome. It's one of the reasons why we've uh, seen such a flourishing of queer comics in general. Uh, like there are there are more people in queer comics today than I I genuinely think have existed at any other time mm-hmm. in history. Uh, and a lot of it is because we've finally got the the publishing model and the tools that we need, or we're starting to get there at least, uh, where we can uh, where we can actually make the books that we want to make, and we can uh, extend our own platforms to help you know help give a hand up to. Uh, to younger and to younger and less well-known creators who are still looking for that that first in in comics, uh, there's a there's a lot of people who got their like first big publishing gig out of uh, Beyond or out of my anthologies or one of Mike's anthologies, uh, and now they're doing uh, bigger and better things in comics. Uh, I'm kind of one mm-hmm. of those success stories. Too. Yeah, the, you the are. Very first like. Yeah, like the very first big publishing gig that I got in comics was a horror comic that I got to do for Spike's Sleep of Reason anthology. Uh, and I was I was so excited about getting to do that. And yeah, that was kind of the thing that opened up, you know, it opened up other doors for me and those doors turned into other doors. And yeah, you kind of build up your career from, from the little steps. But indie anthologies is a way that a lot of people are getting started. And we wouldn't have that without Kickstarter and without Spike. Well, you know, one of the places that a lot of the LGBTQ comics creators and just in general people who have different perspectives and are doing creative work are starting to do work for the bigger publishers is through Boom. Because um, mm-hmm. it seems like Boom like actually goes and seeks talent from from the from our community and like go and knows what Tumblr is, unlike other publishers, et cetera. Um, <laughs> and um, so you recently did a number of issues of Steven Universe comic for Boom Comics. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit how that came about? Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, by the way, if there are any young creators listening to this who are interested in working for a company like Boom, this is, um, this is the way that you do it. Uh, what happens is, boom, their editorial team is very interested in what uh, young web cartoonists especially are doing. They're interested in young up-and-coming people, uh, and they're very open to hiring women and queer people especially. Um, So I think that in my case, what ended up happening was um, a few of the editors had been following my work for a while, uh, and they would send me like little jobs on occasion, like, hey, do you want to do a cover for our Adventure Time comics or like a little short story for this Marshall Lee anthology that we're going to put out? Um, and over time, the, the little jobs start turning into bigger and bigger jobs because um, how it works a lot of times is that if a publisher is interested in you, they'll kind of throw you a couple little jobs first just to see if you're like if you can meet a deadline, if you're friendly to work with, if you turn in good work, all those things. And if you can hit those benchmarks, uh, then you'll be on their radar when they have uh, bigger and better things showing up. Um, so I guess in my case, uh, Shannon Waters was the one who approached me about it, and probably she had, you know, um, she knew my work. Uh, she had been following As the Crow Flies and some of the other little things that I've been doing along the way. Um, she probably also saw me like tweeting obsessively about Steven mm-hmm. Universe and like posting the occasional weird fan art of like 80s businesswoman Peridot AUs and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it was that I was doing. Uh, 
and and yeah, and once this uh, opportunity showed up, I guess um, she emailed me because you know uh, figured that my work would probably be a good fit for this. And yeah, that is, I mean, that's kind of how you get jobs in these industries. Is it's not so much a like there was there's not going to be a posting on a job board somewhere that's like writer for Steven Universe Comics, submit your portfolio here. It's more like if you if you have a year or so or maybe a little bit more of an established track record with an editor and they trust you and they trust your work um, and they've been following you long enough that they know what you're capable of and they know that you are, you know, not going to flake out on them. You're going to meet your deadlines and turn in good polished work uh, and be friendly to work with, all that stuff. Then once a big job like this comes around, then they might approach you about it. Um, so yeah, that can be that can be kind of frustrating for young creators, especially to hear, because I think that you know people are very hungry for like big success stories right out of the gate. But you really do got to work up to those, and it takes a long time, um, which is you know one of the many reasons. On top of all the health insurance stuff that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. why so many cartoonists hold on to day jobs for a really long time when they're starting out or, you know, hold on to them indefinitely. Cause that's a, that's a very valid path in comics too. There are plenty of working professionals in comics who are still, um, still working full-time or part-time jobs, you know, both for health insurance and for like having a little bit of economic security outside of freelancing, which can be very, very up and down and very sporadic. Um, but yeah, Long story short, um, they approached me about it, and um, and yeah, I was I was really excited to get to work on the series because I I loved Steven Universe. It was you know a show that I would watch and cry, uh, and then rewatch and mm-hmm. sing all the songs and like try to get all my friends to watch it with me. Um, it meant a lot to me, especially as a as a queer person, um, like being able to see representation of like you know and more than just one queer person on the show it was like an entire cast of queer people yeah um and some of them were were like genderqueer and non-binary there were people using they pronouns uh which i'd never seen on tv before so yeah the, mm-hmm. the show meant a whole lot to me so i was really excited that i got to got to have that chance to write a couple stories for them yeah, I was super happy that they had someone who was non-binary working on the Giovanni issue. I uh, mm-hmm. that that issue means so much to so many people. Um, I I, re- I ran a tweet chat um, for Pop Politics uh, last month, um, and it was primarily focused on the Steven Universe show. But uh, independently, people just began bringing up how much they loved the Steven Universe comics that you had done in particular. And especially and specifically this funny issue, which is issue two of the Steven Universe series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have so many, I just found it to be, you know, incredibly sensitive, a smart way to talk about how to talk about uh, your gender <laughs> and orientation with people who, you know, socially, who you might have romantic uh, interests or relationships with. And I also mm-hmm. have so many feelings about Stevani's um, amazing purple suit with the epaulets. So it, mm-hmm. that, that, that was uh, <laughs> very important for me in all kinds of ways. So <laughs> yeah. how did, how yeah. did that, oh, like, I mean, the show, like in the show, it's very clear that the character Stevani 
is because they're a fusion of Stephen and and uh, Connie, you know, is not male or female, but something somewhat otherwise. Um, but mm-hmm. it was, I mean, this, I mean, the, the show is so freaking queer. It's amazing to me that we're, I wish I was younger and could have had this in my own youth, but like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, were there questions about how you guys were going to be able to present this in the comic or did you feel like there was any question with respect to the permission from Cartoon Network or do they stay out of these things? Uh, Cartoon Network is definitely involved in the stories. Uh, they, um, they don't dictate to the writers on the comic books what kind of stories they want you to tell uh, most of the time. Uh, sometimes they have stepped in and done stuff like that, but it never happened with any of the stories that I told. Uh, but they do have like an editorial stage where they'll go over all the stories and you know make sure that mostly to make sure that everything fits with the canon of the show that they've already established. Um, so I can't you know you can't do anything wild and be like. Uh, I don't know, like uh, Ronaldo is secretly a gem. Like I couldn't do anything like that. <laughs> Even uh, though he thinks but, he is, that's another story. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there are definitely limits on what the what the writers are able to do, and Cartoon Network is there mostly to make sure that you're staying within those boundaries. Um, so, for the most part, like all the stories that that I did on Steven Universe, they would come back with a couple changes that that would need to be made here and there. But for the most part, they kind of stayed out of it. Um, They were mostly pretty willing to uh, let me, let me get away with the kind of stuff that I wanted to get away with within reason. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, for that story, I mean, that's the one that I'm, yeah, like the people you were talking to on Twitter, that's the one that I'm most happy with. Um, in part because it was the most personal one. You know, me as a non-binary person being able to uh, write an actual, like, canonical non-binary character uh, and talk about some experiences which are which are more specific to trans and non-binary people. Things like, you know, how do you go about uh, disclosure when when you need to, or you know, what are what are the boundaries where you're able to say no, I don't need to give this information to another person, or I'm allowed to I'm allowed to not disclose this when I want to, uh, and how do you have those conversations with yourself, uh, and how do you how do you lay those boundaries in a healthy way and have those have those hard conversations with other people in your life. Um, and, and yeah, I was really glad that I was able to get to talk about stuff like that in, um, especially in a kids comic because uh, yeah, because there are going to be a lot of uh, trans and non-binary kids who are going to be reading this. Uh, so I really, you know, that was the audience that I had in my mind when I was writing this story. I was like, okay, I want to do something that's going to be, you know, specifically for those kids out there who are, you know not getting a whole lot of stories about people like them um, and about the, the issues that they're going through. And that's, I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about Steven Universe is that, you know, the, um, the, the concepts of gender and gender identity and, and queerness are already so rich within that show. And there's so much complexity to it already, that it's, you know, it's a really natural place to be able to tell stories like this, stories about uh, stories about disclosure, stories about hard conversations that you have with people who people who might have a crush on you, but you're not ready for it or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so I was 
really, really happy with how that story turned out in particular. Um, it's also so great. It was so great getting to work with Katie Farina on it. Um, she's mm-hmm. just a wonderful human being and a wonderful illustrator. And like, you know, I sent the script off to her. I was like, Oh, how is this going to look? And she just nailed it. Uh, she like, like you can see how she like totally got what I was going for um, and just had so much fun drawing all the, all the costumes and all the, the dancing and whatnot. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm really, really pleased with how that story came out. And I'm, I'm just glad that, you know, we're living in a, in a time where it's okay to publish kids comics that talk about issues like that um, and could be published on a wide enough scale that like, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of actual like non-binary teenagers are going to be able to read this and they're going to have easy access to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, I'm still like incredibly floored that I got that I got to tell a story like that. Uh, I don't know that there's any other cartoon show out there right now where I could have uh, where I could have had a character that could have carried a narrative like that. Yeah, not 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 as a central character, and not with that completely like it is the text. There is no subtext approach, yeah, you yeah. know. And I just yeah, love I don't have to Stephanie and um, Kiki trying on all the different clothes at the formal wear, formal wear store, like dresses and suits and like mm-hmm. that those are all like completely valid options for them to wear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of this is a little bit me like looking back on like the weird binary gendering that happens in, in spaces like prom and being like, all right, yeah. how could we make this <laughs> make this better and more fun for everyone involved? And and yeah, there's also so many like um so many models out there for like cool uh gender bending like formal wear presentation. Uh like I got to send a, a big old list off to Katie, the illustrator for that page, where it was like, okay, here's all the different like cool fashion references that I think it'd be neat to pull from. Like, let's get some Janelle Monet in there, and let's hmm. get some Grace Jones in there, um, some Sasha Velour, uh, just you know, all these like really cool, uh, you know, gender fluid or androgynous people who uh, who who we can draw from for fashion design. So there there is a lot in there. It was really fun on Tumblr after that issue came out too, watching people kind of like um, almost like a scavenger hunt go through and like find all the references. Like, oh, this is a Yuri on Ice thing, or like, uh-huh. oh my God, there's the yeah, there's, uh, all sorts of fun stuff that we we got to hide in there. That's fabulous. I mean, I we we frequently on the show complain about how few people doing art for comics understand fashion as a piece of character development, <laughs> let alone as something mm-hmm. which is relevant to gender expression. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's not something which a lot of particularly like straight male artists like recognize as even important. <laughs> and their art suffers for it. Their art is not mm-hmm. as good because they're bad at this. Um, this isn't yeah. not just like a representation. Thing. This is you're making your art bad. Yeah. Like stop doing this to butch women in your comics. But anyway, um, I uh, but yeah. So <laughs> I, I I I love seeing folks actually picking out the fashion references and the intentionality that you put into the clothing was fantastic, mm-hmm. as well as to the dialogue. 
Um, and, you know, the, the first, and I could literally just like endlessly talk about how much I love the Stefani issue, but I, I, I know that um, <laughs> there are, are other, other stories as well. Um, did you feel like, uh, you know, wh- how have you felt like doing comics for a, something that has such an active and passionate fandom? I know that it was cool seeing folks doing the um, scavenger hunt for fashion references and pop culture references, for example. But um, how's your experience mm-hmm. been like working in a, and a really active fandom. Um, for me, and it's young been fandom. pretty positive. Yeah, for me, it's been pretty positive so far. I know that, I mean, there are definitely some areas of the Steven Universe fandom where they can, like, turn on people. Um, and I think Katie got a little bit of that, where, like, there were a couple people, you know, most of it is positive, but then, like, people would also go through her likes on Twitter and find like, Oh no, she liked some piece of fan art, which was a ship that we think is problematic. So we're going to do this like big old call out post for her. Uh, So there, there was some stuff like that. I didn't get any of it directed at me, but I was kind of constantly aware that that stuff does happen on the periphery. Um, But uh, for the most part, it was pretty positive. I, yeah, I, I yeah, I, I don't have too many complaints, and it was fun getting That's to great. put something out there where like so many people are reading it, uh, which which you don't always get with web comics because those have a a smaller audience by design. Generally, yeah, they do. Generally, I just think that one of the things mm-hmm. that I feel like a lot of folks have lost track of in the conversations around the universe fandom is that like there are, are tons of literal children, not like <laughs> literal children, children, yes literal children who we're, who we're talking about and like to think about how children might behave and to like be, Mm -hmm. you know, not as judgmental about kids being out of line and some of their conduct and to be more instructive and less of an asshole because they're kids and they don't freaking know any better. Like, yeah. And we all remember, like, we all remember what, horrible things we all did as like you know 15 year olds or whatever uh so I I do think that most people try to be you know have have some patience uh when we're when you're looking at the kind of uh the kind of things that happen on on spaces you know especially on places like Tumblr where a lot of the a lot of the people who are frequenting those websites and having these discussions are are young people who are still, you know, still trying to figure things out for themselves and still trying to like kind of cut their teeth on, I think, social justice issues, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we were we were all there at some point in our lives. So yeah, I I do think that most um, most adult cartoonists that I know were, you know, even if it sucks to occasionally have like. Uh, call out posts directed against you for kind of spurious reasons. Uh, we're all kind of aware that, like, you know, you don't you don't go after kids for doing stuff like that because they're kids, um, and every everybody makes mistakes and everybody's still learning. So yeah, you you react with grace and patience when you're able to. I like that description a lot. So now you're working on getting uh, As the Flow Cries into print through the Kickstarter, mm-hmm. which you have exceeded your goal, which is amazing. Um, and yeah. you're also working on another comic, it sounds like. So how, how can folks support the Kickstarter? Like, where do things sit right now in terms of it? Um, well, the Kickstarter campaign closed a couple weeks ago. So uh, that, 
Um, if you wanted to get a physical copy of As the Crow Flies, uh, it'll probably be in print eh, sometime in the fall, I think. Um, we're finalizing the book PDF right now, just like, you know, getting getting the last of our ducks in a row. And then it will be printed, which always takes a couple months, and then, um, you know, shipped back to the U.S. And uh, we'll do all the fulfillment for the Kickstarter orders first. Uh, but there there probably will be a route for pre-ordering it as an individual sometime in the next couple months or so. Uh, and I'll definitely, you know, make sure that people are aware on my, my Twitter and my Tumblr and whatnot of when those things happen. Um, if you're, uh, if anyone listening is part of a bookstore or a school or a library or any place that's able to order books through the like mainstream book ordering channels, uh, then you can go about uh, getting copies of the book that way. Um, there are uh, pre-orders set up, I think, both on Amazon and also in the like the book catalogs. Uh, where you can pre-order this book. Uh, so, it, yeah, and that's mostly for people who have, like, a bookstore or a library or a school that they're ordering books for. You can still get them that way. Uh, everybody mm -hmm. else you might be stuck with, you know, uh, either Amazon pre-orders that won't show up for another couple months or, or waiting until it goes on sale in the, the Iron Circus store. But, but it'll be out before the end of the year. Uh, you know, book printing always takes a little bit of time. Um, but, yeah, I was really excited that the Kickstarter got funded and got overfunded. We hit our stretch goal, too, so I'm going to be drawing a little 20-page uh, side story about Sydney and her mom, too. That's going to go out to all the Kickstarter backers, too. So and if I have to choose one uh, thing to have a story of, like, that is one of the top two things I'd want a side story of. So good good call on that. Oh, yay! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to tell this story. I. I really like the dynamic between Sydney and her mom, and it's something that, like, you never get to see in the comic because this <laughs> happens at camp and mom isn't right. there. Uh, but, but, yeah, Sydney is also just, like, uh, a total treat to write. She's just so energetic and fun and weird, uh, and I, I love her to death. So, yeah, getting to tell a story which is a little bit more of a spotlight on her, I'm really excited about it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. And um, do you have to, like, remaster the art because it's, like, horizontal to make it become vertical? Or, like, how does that work? Um, you know, I did end up going back and uh, making some changes to the older art. Um, not so much for the page dimensions, but more like, okay, so the, I've been working on As the Crow Flies for about five years now. Uh, and my my drawing style and my like basic abilities as a cartoonist really really evolved in an obvious way over the course of those five years. Um, so like you look at the early pages versus the later pages, and I don't know. At least I do. I look at the early <laughs> pages like no, what was I doing? I didn't know how to draw anything. Um, so early this year and late last year, I spent a good three or four months. Uh, going into like the first two chapters of the book and making a lot of corrections to the artwork. Um, a lot of it was redrawing things like faces and hair and hands and uh, yeah, there was just there were a lot of uh, character consistency problems and uh, like basic uh, human anatomy <laughs> problems that that I uh, had to go back in and correct. Uh, so the the books will 
look a little bit more polished than the webcomic does because uh, those early pages got a little bit of a facelift. Um, huh. But yeah, that was uh, that was a good three months or so, maybe even more of my life that was going back in and like redrawing elements from the old page, um, and then you know scanning them in, cleaning them up in Photoshop, and dropping them in, and you know trying to make it look like I didn't drop in some some edit over the old artwork, making sure that nobody's going to notice that there's new stuff overlaid on top of the old stuff. Um, yeah, so there was definitely a lot of um, there's a surprising amount of Photoshop that goes into traditional media work. Um, and this was definitely a case where that was happening. Interesting. Interesting. So the page orientation is not going to be different. Like it's going to be sort of horizontal. Um, it'll be, it'll be vertical. The pages are, the dimensions are something like six inches across by eight and a half inches down. Um, so they're they're like tall rectangles, but a little bit. Um, I think the books will end up being a little bit squatter than the average uh, like dimensions that you expect for a graphic novel. Um, but but yeah, they'll be vertical oriented pages, and I think hmm. they should be vertical oriented on the website too. But but it maybe looks a little confusing because you have to scroll on the website to see the whole thing. Or yeah, knows. that's probably just looking at it that way I, rather than as through. A different format. So, thank you for being mm-hmm. patient and explaining that. Uh, oh, and then, what's no, the other no project that you're? What's the other project that you're working on that you mentioned? The love story. Um, yeah. So I'm working on a, a queer western romance comic, and it's going to be published through Learner. Uh, so working with a, a larger book publisher than um, As the Crow Flies, which is going through Iron Circus, um, and it's going to be really fun. Uh, I wish I was allowed to share pages that I'm working on because uh, they're they're super fun. Uh, this is a story that I kind of approached like I, I'm really interested in queer and trans history and especially queer and trans history in the American West because uh, you really just don't hear a whole lot about like the lives of queer and trans people in the 1800s, but there definitely were queer and trans people. Um, so I invented a like goofy little romance adventure story about two women who uh, are kind of outlaws and they uh, go on a spy mission against the Confederate Army in 1861 New Mexico in order to oh. steal some plans from them and sell them to the Union side. Uh, oh and my over God. the course, they yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. There are like stagecoach robberies and espionage and smooches. And yeah, it's going to be great. Um, I could not possibly love this more. Like, not only is it like (laughs) queer people in the past who are like women, but like they're spying on the Confederacy to help Mm -hmm. save the world. So um, that's awesome. I, I, I enjoy Westerns a lot, but I like, I'm so fucking done with the romanticization of people who think that slavery is fine. It's like, no, that's not romantic. That's evil. Um, And I'm very done with Western stories that want to perpetuate that mythology, which is, in fact, literally dangerous in people's lives right now. Yeah. No, I love Westerns because I love, like, you know, I love action and adventure, but so many Westerns are just super racist and super awful, Uh, like, you know, both with slavery and with, uh, like, uh, anti-Indian policies and just, like, rampant, awful 
gross white male power fantasies throughout. Uh, so I was like, okay, you know, I want to take something which is a Western genre story, but make it not gross and repulsive and awful. Um, uh, so, so a lot of it is kind of like, uh, it's sort of my like uh, escapist wish fulfillment stories about just like, let's just have two badass lady outlaws who are going to come together and, you know, uh, go on this secret spy mission and be, be cool outlaws together and then kiss because yeah, because it happened. We just don't get a whole lot of those stories in the historical record. Cause you know, stuff like get, that gets buried very quickly in a lot of our historical accounts of, uh, of the West because, you know, gotta, gotta make way for all those white dude stories. But, well, but yeah, crazy. there's a lot like, more going on at the time. I mean, because because of the overlay of indigenous cultures and African American folks who'd escaped, and the uh, lack of traditional formal law structure in some places. Like you have a society mm-hmm. that had very different cultural norms, which in fact could be a lot more free and different from yeah the life that you might have if you were like living in New York at the time. And, mm-hmm. um, and yet we don't see that the variety and the diversity of what's possible in that space represented in art about it, even though it would make it way more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much of the historical record that just gets ignored in most uh, like Western, uh, you know, typical Western stories. Uh, like I, um, when I was living in Denver, I was really interested in the history of queer people in Colorado. Um, and I spent a, a really long time, like every year I would try to do at least one or two, uh, like one page historical comics where I deeply researched uh, some the lives of some queer or trans person who had been alive in Colorado at some point in the 1800s. Uh, and the amount of like hoops that I had to jump through just to get like even just a couple newspaper articles about these people um, or just a couple accounts. Uh, the, the historical record is so thin on the ground, but we know that these people existed because, you know, queer people and trans people aren't anything new. Uh, so, but it's so hard just tracking down surviving records of what their lives looked like. Um, so, yeah. So part of this story is me being like, okay, I'll take, the knowledge that I do have of the, you know, the few accounts that I have been able to research and then come up with a, with a fictional story, which is something like, you know, uh, while this isn't like an, a real person who existed back then, this is what their life might've looked like. Uh, and we know that there were queer and trans people and they, they might've been moving through spaces in this kind of way. And they might've been encountering these problems and coming up with these solutions and talking about these types of issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. Cause, cause it, you so rarely get that in history and, and also in historical fiction too. Um, so yeah, there's maybe it's self-serving. Maybe it's just me putting out a book that's like, the, the silly escapist fantasy that I want to see in the world. Um, but, but a lot of it is based off of like little bits of historical research that I've been able to do along the way, which I'm really excited to bring in, bring into the light. I, I could not be more excited about this comic. This is like everything I want to hear about. Um, oh, as, yay. 
Yes. I, I, I mean, fantastic. So when do you think that will be going to the pub, be published? Uh, probably not for a couple more years. Right now I'm in the middle of penciling it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm like 75% done with the pencils right now. Uh, and then I'm going to have to colored pencil everything, and that takes a long time because I'm slow and colored pencil is slow. Uh, I think that the book is slated to be released sometime in 2019, um, so a couple more years, but mm-hmm. but yeah, it'll be really good when it comes out. Uh, I'm really excited about it too. That um, I mean, Learner is a children's book publisher primarily. Uh, they're really interested in getting books into the school and library market, especially. Uh, and I'm really excited to be able to put a book like this into like school libraries. Um, yeah. And they've got you know the distribution and the the networks to get it into. Uh, you know, get it into classrooms, get it into libraries, get it, you know, get it into the hands of kids. Uh, And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to be able to like put out a, put out a book about queer and trans ladies in the wild west uh, doing outlaw stuff and also smooching uh, and get that into the hands of, you know, school age children, corrupting the youth and all that. It's it's what we get into the queer comics for. Um, Yes. So that, that exactly. Really Wordleman was totally right about that. He he pegged us out from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, right. All about corrupting corrupting the minds of America's youth. But I, I I'm just I love everything about that comic. I could not be more excited. So so thank oh, you for yay. sharing that information I'm really excited with us. Too. Oh, of um, course. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other guest writing okay. spots coming up or anything else our listeners should be on the lookout for? Um, not not at the moment. Uh, I've kind of scaled back a lot of my uh, smaller projects right now, mostly because I want to uh, want to be spending my time focused on As the Crow Flies and this Western book as much as possible, um, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm very, very slow. Uh so, yeah, not a whole lot of smaller projects that are going to be coming out in the meanwhile. Uh, I think the next small-scale project is probably that Sydney side story, uh, that, mm-hmm. and that'll be going out to Kickstarter backers first, and probably after they've all had a chance to read it, we'll, we'll make it available in some way, shape, or form for people who weren't Kickstarter backers if they want to be able to see it too. Um, and that'll probably be in uh, maybe the fall sometime. Um, but until then, mostly it's, you know, me sitting in my studio, plugging away at these pages on these two books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. And um, if you could just let our listeners know where, where they can find you online to keep checking out your work and uh, also support the Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in reading As the Crow Flies, it's a webcomic. Uh, even though it's going to be a print book, too, the webcomic's not going anywhere. That'll stay up for as long as I'm uh, still working on the story. Uh, and that's all at MelanieGilman.com. It's M-E-L-A-N-I-E-G-I-L-L-M-A-N.com. Uh, and, yeah, you can read the whole thing right now if you wanted to for free, which is the magic of webcomics. Uh, and, you know, I'm also on Twitter at Mel Gilman, uh, Tumblr, I think my handle is Pigeon Bits on there. You know, I'm I'm pretty easy to find. So 
feel free to follow me. Um, keep an eye out for when the book is going to go on sale as the crow flies, probably mm -hmm. uh, sometime in the fall. Uh, or pre-order it now if you are a library or a bookstore and you're interested in having it as part of your collection. Fabulous. Well, thanks again for joining us. And um, I, oh, I hope to have you on me. again in the future. Really love it. Yeah. Uh, anytime. Uh, have a great night. And then um, All next right. week. You too. Have a good night. Take care. <laughs> well, that is awesome. I love, love, love having Melanie on the show. Um, our next episode next week uh, will be back. We'll be on Monday. Um, and I will let you know what that is soon. And um, the week after that, I think we have another special guest coming up for that as well, although I guess I shouldn't announce that quite yet. Well, but Brett will be back. My co-host Brett will be back. Um, remember, you can always check out Graf Graphic Policy Radio on our website, uh, graphicpolicy.com. This podcast, if you missed the beginning of it, will be downloadable on at Graphic Policy's um, iTunes channel probably in a couple hours. And by tomorrow, we will be listenable on blog on Blog Talk Radio's website, on SoundCloud, as well as Stitcher and iTunes. So if you want to give it a listen and share it, it'll be there too. Uh, there are for more great coverage of comics and politics, uh, definitely come to graphicpolicy.com. We're also on Twitter at Graphic Policy. And I myself, Ilana, I'm on Twitter all the goddamn time at Ilana underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A -A underscore Brooklyn. Thank you for joining us. And um, have a great week. As Brett would say, keep it geeky. <laughs> <laughs>